Amen. Well, good morning. I hope you're doing well. Uh, a little bit of a brisk morning, and um, it's going to be a nice day, beautiful day. And we're really honored and glad that you chose to be with us uh, to worship together. My name is Adam Young. I'm the lead pastor here at Element Church. And I want to welcome you to the very first week of a new series uh, that we've entitled, What If? Now, let me tell you a little background to why this series and why this name and, and how we got here. Um, I have been a fan for a long time of both uh, religious studies, but also um, the discipline of sociology. Uh, my bachelor's degree was in sociology and religion, and it's something that uh, I've just been interested in for a long, long time. And there's a uh, very well-known sociologist named Rodney Stark. He was a uh, professor um, of sociology and comparative religions at the University of Washington for a long, long time, and then uh, is now the disting- a distinguished professor uh, of the social sciences at the Institutes for the Study of Religion um, that's based out of Baylor University in Texas, and um, has devoted most of his life to studying the sort of the phenomenon of religion and how it works and why people are attracted to it and um, how religion grows and influences and um, impacts society and how society and culture impact religious uh, belief and practice. And so uh, just a, a world that I've been very interested in for a long, long time. Um, and something interesting about Rodney Stark is that um, for a very long time, for the far majority of his academic career, uh, was not a religious person at all, most certainly not a believer in uh, Jesus um, or a self-proclaimed um, uh, Christian. As a matter of fact, he would claim himself for a long time to be an atheist. And uh, one of his well-known books uh, was published, I think, in 1987, um, a Comparison of Religion. Um, he described himself as uh, personally incapable of religious faith. Um, but uh, he began over the next few decades to really dive in to specifically study Christianity and really how it began and why it began. And why did this very small group of people who were very insignificant, um, unknown, in a very corner, you know, uh, hidden corner, uh, of the world, not in, located in any major power seat, um, how did it grow up to be such a large and influential religion? So he began studying the background and the history of the Christian uh, tradition and the Christian faith. Um, and he has gone on to write a lot of um, really interesting books, if this is a topic that interests you at all. Um, probably his most bestseller, most known book is uh, a book called, uh, I think he published it in 1996, The Rise of Christianity. He updated that book in 2012. Uh, I think the new book is called The Triumph of Christianity, uh, where he just takes a, a look from a sociological perspective to understand how did Christianity grow, why did it grow, um, how has it influenced uh, our world, and how has our world sort of influenced uh, Christian thought and practice. Fascinating reads. But what is really interesting to me is that through this process of studying the impact and the beginnings of Christianity, uh, Rodney Stark would come to a place of personal faith in Jesus, where he now calls himself and self-describes uh, and labels himself as 
a practicing Christian. And it was his study of how Christianity has impacted the world that opened his eyes to the fact that maybe some of this could be true. Maybe there, there, from his perspective, there must be something at the root of what Christians believe and how, what they do and how they impact and influence the world. There has to be something significant and true behind it all. And Rodney Stark would not be what we would probably call or label or understand as a traditional conservative Christian, but one, but, but certainly an individual who has placed his faith and his trust in Jesus for who Jesus said himself and promised himself and revealed himself to be. And so a lot of his writings are really focused on how has Christianity changed the world. And so it started me asking the question, what if? What if Jesus had never been born? What, what would our world look like if Jesus had never come? And so over the course of the next several weeks, throughout the month of December, that's going to be our focus, our study together. What if? What if Jesus had never come? Or we could kind of, kind of re-engineer the question to look at what we're going to study is how has Jesus and his coming impacted and influenced our world? So for the first few weeks, we're going to look at that from a theological perspective. So today and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a, a theological approach to um, how Jesus' coming has changed the world for us. And then we're going to close out with looking at a historical and sociological perspective of how Jesus' coming has literally changed the course of human history and how our world looks different today because of things that Jesus introduced um, that didn't yet exist. And so that's going to be what we're going to look at over the course of this month. We'll start with looking at the issue theologically, and then we'll move and look at it historically and sociologically. And so where I want to begin is today in Matthew chapter 16. Now, Matthew chapter 16 is sort of a hinge point for the book of Matthew. The same story is recorded in Luke chapter 9 and Mark chapter 8. Um, and on, in both instances, especially in Mark chapter 8, um, this event that we're about to read is sort of a hinge point um, in the gospel story where Everything about Jesus' life and ministry and the tra trajectory of where he's going takes a dramatic shift at this point. Um, and it's from this point that Jesus transitions mostly out of his dramatic public ministry and begins focusing and moving towards Jerusalem in preparation for his death. And so we're going to pick up Matthew chapter 16 and we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. So I'm going to be using my Bible. If you have yours open, that's great. Uh, if you didn't bring one, you can use one that's in the seat provided for you. If you don't own a Bible or don't like the one you do own, take that one that's in your seat home with you as our gift today. And uh, if you'd like to make it easier, just open up your Bible app. You can follow right along with us in your live events tab. So Matthew chapter 16, let's start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus um, has um, been doing some miraculous deeds. Uh, he's been healing people. Uh, he's recently just fed 5,000 people. He um, comes to this rather insignificant region. And he sits down with his disciples over probably a campfire or something and begins talking with them. And he starts with, who do people say that I am? What is it that people think about me? And the disciples give some answers. Um, all of these answers are religious in nature. Essentially, uh, the disciples are saying, well, people don't know really who you are. They have all these guesses. They think you're some kind of prophet, some kind of minister. You've come to do something special. You come preaching a message. You come uh, calling out to God's people and trying to call them to something greater. But really, we don't know. No one knows who you really are. They're trying to figure it out. They're getting closer. They're getting some kind of idea, but they're trying to figure it out. That's essentially what they revealed to Jesus by naming all of these different individuals. If we wanted to, we could go through and we could look at each of those. Uh, we won't today because our focus is instead uh, on Jesus and what we can learn about him and his coming today. And so then Jesus turns and he says, but who do you say that I am? And here's the pivotal question. Here's where the conversation begins to shift. Now it becomes really personal. We could go around the room even in here today and say, who do people say that Jesus is? Who do your coworkers or your family members or your next door neighbors or your, the people living in your own household or pick any category, whatever demographic you want, pick a, a a qualifier, and we could say, who do those people think Jesus is? And we would get a plethora of answers. He's a myth. He's a legend. He's a good moral philosopher, teacher. He's a lunatic who said some crazy things. Some might even confess faith in him. But we would get a variety of answers and just as Jesus did with his disciples, I believe that he would want to do and does do the same for you and I to turn to us and say, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks as we look theologically at this whole question of what if, is we're going to look at the names of Jesus. We're going to each week pick a different name and look at that name and what it means and why we call Jesus by these names and really allow it to inform us of who Jesus is and what he has done and the impact that his coming has had. Because what we call Jesus reveals who we believe him to be. The names and the titles that we ascribe to him reveal what we believe about him and why he came and what he did while he was here. And so let's look at Peter's response. 
But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice how he words that. You are the Christ. Many times we refer to Jesus or Jesus Christ, or sometimes we just refer to him as Christ, as though Christ were just another one of his birth names. Almost like Jesus is a first name and Christ is his middle name or his last name. Uh, As though this is something that his parents gave him at birth. But Christ is a title. It's not a part of his birth name. It's a declaration of who he is. And Peter says, you are the Christ. And what do we mean by Christ? What does that title mean? Well, it goes back into the Old Testament. So your New Testament is written in Greek, was originally, um, in an ancient form of Greek called Koine Greek. It's actually a different than modern Greek just because languages change over time. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so in the Hebrew Bible, um, we, we have this word, Mashiach, or Mashiach, uh, which means anointed one. And in about the 3rd to 4th century B.C., the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, were translated into the Greek, into Greek. Um, and what happened is the Greek translation of the Old Testament kind of became the dominant, predominant form of the Old Testament that most people would read and would study. And in Greek, the word they used to translate Mashiach, which means anointed one, was a Greek word, Christos, which is where we get our word Christ from. It's the same word that Peter uses here. He says, you are the Christos. You are the Christ. And in Greek, Christos means anointed one. And so if you look back in the history throughout the Old Testament, we see that different people were anointed and, and it, it was said that they were anointed ones. They would be messiahs with a lowercase m. Um, and we see different people in the Old Testament that receive this designation. We see kings who are anointed as a part of their commissioning to be kings. We see prophets and we see priests. All three of those offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king, are anointed in the Old Testament. But what began to happen in Jewish faith and understanding is they began to understand God more, and as he began to reveal more about his plans for the Israelite, what we would later call the Jewish people, is that they began to come up with this anticipation and this expectation, not of a anointed one. They had had a lot of those. Different prophets and different priests and different kings who had served different roles in leading God's people, but they had begun to build this expectation as God began to speak to them about the future, not of a anointed one or an anointed one, forgive my grammar, an anointed Did anyone else catch it when I said it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
All right. An anointed one, but they began looking for the anointed one. And we get little pictures throughout the Old Testament of what this will begin to look like. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. Right after Adam and Eve sin for the first time and sin is introduced into this world and, and God begins making these declarations about what's going to happen as a result of sin and what's going to happen to men and what's going to happen to women. And then he says to Satan, something was going to happen to him as well. And that one was coming, Satan would strike his heel, but he would crush his head. Satan would strike his heel, but this one who was coming, this offspring that should be anticipated, would crush his head. And then you go into Genesis chapter 12, and you see that God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he says that through your, see, through your offspring, I am going to bless you so that I can bless the world. The entire world, all nations will be blessed through your offspring. And then we jump over into the life of Moses. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, as Moses' leadership um, over the Israelite people is coming to a close, he announces to the people, hey, one greater than me is coming. And essentially says, who's going to lead you to a freedom that I haven't been able to lead you? Who's going to proclaim to you God's words? One is coming, who's far greater than me, and you'll see greater things through him than you will through me. Then we see a man like David, who's anointed as king over all of Israel, and God makes a promise that through David, God is going to do something special. And there's a number of different promises made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then one of them is that God says, and through your offspring I will establish my kingdom, and this throne and this reign and this kingdom will never end. And so you see all of these different anointed people in the Old Testament, and then God shows up and says, but through them, one day, through their offspring, through their influence, one is coming who will be greater than all these. These are great anointed ones, but there's coming the anointed one, the Messiah. The word Messiah is what, we, what we've transliterated out of the Hebrew for Mashiach. Or Mashiach is, we, we get our word Messiah from it. The Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ is coming. One who will be anointed to fulfill all these promises that God has made all along the way to his people. Someone is coming, and though Satan will strike his heel, he will crush Satan's head. One is coming that through him all nations of the world will be impacted and blessed. One is coming who will lead God's people into a greater freedom than even Moses could. One is coming who is going to sit on a throne that is greater than King David's throne, and his reign will never end. And people began to anticipate, when is the anointed one coming when is he coming to fulfill all that God has promised and revealed? And when Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. He's not simply referring to his birth name. 
He's not even saying, hey, you are an anointed one. He says, you are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. It is through you that the promises we have waited thousands of years to come to fulfillment are going to come true. And Jesus' response here is, Jesus answered him in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. That's just a fancy way of saying Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This phrase, flesh and blood, we see four other times in the New Testament. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Galatians 1, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 2. All of the instances of this, this phrase, flesh and blood, simply refers to our natural human abilities, our physical bodies, our human nature. Jesus says, Simon, your human nature didn't reveal this to you. You didn't pick this up just by natural clues. Something special has happened here. Peter, God has revealed something to you. You're beginning to understand who I am, not just because you know my name, You know what I look like. You know the sound of my voice. But because you're starting to understand why I have come and what I'm here to do. I'm not just another anointed one. There's been a lot of those. I'm the anointed one. I am the Christ come to fulfill the promises that God has been making to people for thousands of years. Of years. Let's look at one more in John chapter 11. So this will be in the screen if you want to turn your Bibles there, or if you're in the Bible app, if you clicked Live Events and Element Church, then you're right there ready for it. And the background to John chapter 11 is that um, there's a man named Lazarus who has died, and uh, Jesus is on his way to go see. Lazarus, his tomb, his family who is mourning. And before he can even make it to the tomb, his Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, show up to talk to Jesus. And Jesus begins talking to Martha, Lazarus's sister, begins talking to her about what's taking place. And she's frustrated because she knows Jesus has the power to heal sick people. She's seen him do it. She sent word to Jesus that, hey, my brother is sick, the one you love. This is somebody that, this is a family that Jesus knew very well and loved dearly. And she's rightly a little frustrated, I think. Jesus showed up to the party too late. He had the ability to heal her brother and then he didn't show up in time and he died. So she's mourning the loss of her brother, and I think she's probably a little confused, too, about why Jesus, this man that they love and know, and who he clearly loves them, why he didn't show up. And so Jesus, in talking to her through her grief, in verse 23, it says this, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's saying, yeah, I know God eventually will take care of things at the end of time. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So we have this confession again. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to start, you don't have to continue looking into some distant future date for God's solution to show up. The solution is here. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the promise that you have been waiting for. Do you believe this, Martha? And she answers, of course I believe it. Because I believe that you're the Christ. I believe you are the anointed one. You are the one who we've been waiting for centuries, for generation after generation to show up, to bring about God's the fulfillment of God's promises, to be God's solution to our problem. And then the way she ends this statement, I think is probably how most of us would not have answered or not have stated it. It's almost as though Martha's grammar is as bad as mine. (laughs) Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Hasn't he already come, though? Like, he's there. He's standing in front of you. Martha, you, Christmas has already happened. He came, right? And standing there talking to Jesus, says, I believe you are the Christ who is coming into the world. And that statement reveals I believe that Martha understood that what Jesus had come to do had only begun. That his birth was just the beginning. Most of us, when we think of Christmas, we think of a baby. I mean, rightly so. Jesus was born as a baby in a manger. But Christmas is about so much more than the birth of a baby. Martha understood this. She wasn't just celebrating that the Christ had come. She was celebrating that the Christ was here and he was beginning a movement. That what the anointed one had come to to establish and to inaugurate was just beginning. And in Romans chapter 9, we get a picture of just one part of what Jesus had begun. Romans chapter 9, this is the Apostle Paul writing. And he says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. And so background to what Paul's saying here before we go any further is he's been writing about how Paul himself is a Jew. And his heart is breaking over the fact that many of his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus the Messiah. I mean, in the end, we know that God made a promise to Abraham that it was through his lineage, through his offspring, through what would become known as the, the Hebrews, and then later we would refer to them as the Israelites, and then later we would refer them to as, to as the Jews, the same group of people, we just different names for different periods of history, but that through this group of people would come a blessing that would bless the nations. And Paul was seeing that blessing reach out to the nations, but his heart broke because the very people to whom the promise had been made by many, by most portions were missing out on the blessing themselves. God had given a blessing to these people to bless the nations, and it was this very people who was missing out on the blessing because they had rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah. Not all, but some of them. And Paul, who was a Jew himself, who was a passionate, zealot, hater of Jesus and everything he stood for and the church that Jesus had come to build until he met Jesus face to face one day. And it changed everything. And he went from the greatest destroyer of God's church to the greatest builder of God's church. And his heart breaks over his own people. And he says, if I could, I would, I would choose myself to be accursed, to be cut off from Christ, if it meant that the rest of my fellow people could come to know him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one who had been promised to our people generations and generations ago. My heart breaks enough that I would cut myself off from Christ if it meant saving the rest of my people. We'll pick it back up in verse 4 where we were. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul redefines the game. He says, God made a promise to his people that through their offspring, they would be blessed, and through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But God's word hasn't failed. Because as it turns out, just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you're genuinely his child. It's not the descendants of the flesh, it's the descendants of the promise. And what Paul's going to go on to write about and has been writing about in this book in Romans is that if you imagine God's people like a bush or a tree, that those that through their own belief and practice proved themselves to be illegitimate children were cut off. Those branches were cut off, and God has grafted in new branches. 
I don't know everyone's story in here, but if you aren't of Jewish heritage and lineage by birth, then you were grafted in. You and I are the ones that got grafted into God's people because we aren't children of of the flesh. We aren't Jewish by birth or heritage. We are God's people by promise, by faith. And we've been grafted in. What Jesus came and revealed is that now we understand God's people, God's promises, God's fulfillment, God's blessings in a new light. What the Christ has done is to come and to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, but he did it in a way that none of us could have or would have expected it because now the promise is for those who believe, not for those who are descendants of one particular man. The Christ has come and revealed that he has established a kingdom and he sits on a throne that will never end, but not the earthly kingdom that many were expecting. He came to establish the kingdom of God. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are citizens of heaven and our king sits and reigns on his throne in that kingdom. And it's a kingdom and a throne that will never end. One greater than Moses, the anointed one has come, but he didn't come to lead us into physical freedom outside of some earthly oppressors. He has led us into a spiritual freedom, a freedom we couldn't earn or purchase or work our way into Because as the Bible teaches, all of us are born as slaves to sin and Jesus has provided the freedom. He has led us into a greater freedom than Moses could ever dream of. And as much as Satan wanted to destroy him, he merely bit his heel. He merely struck his heel. And with his resurrection, Jesus crushed his head. The Christ has come. And because of it, you and I now are citizens of a new kingdom. You and I now have a new identity, not through birth, but through faith. The what if is that the rules of the game have all been changed. That the door has been opened up to all of us, Jew and Gentile. Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile anymore. There is no slave or free anymore. There is no male and female anymore. All are one in Christ Jesus. The door has been opened up so that the world no longer defines your value or my value. The world no longer defines what we're worthy of or unworthy of. The world no longer defines our hope and our future. The Christ has come. He's redefined it all for us so that now you and I can be called citizens of heaven. And now, in fulfillment of a promise, 
we once again wait for the Savior to come. Because as Jesus revealed and as the rest of the New Testament teaches, Jesus is coming again. What he began with his birth, that we understand through the cross and the resurrection, will be finished and completed in his return. And just like the Jews of old who awaited the original coming of the one, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, we now wait and anticipate his return. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us. For being the anointed one of God. So many generations of your people just desperately prayed for and anticipated and hoped for. And we thank you that unlike the anointed prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament, you have come as the prophet, the priest, the king, the great anointed one that has come to fulfill all the roles that so many men and women had tried but could never fulfill on their own. And you have come and fulfilled them all for us. And Jesus, this Christmas season, we don't just celebrate the birth of you as a baby. We celebrate the birth of a king, of a king who sits on an eternal throne. We celebrate one who, who's our great high priest, who has done on our behalf what we could not do, who has offered the ultimate sacrifice, who has made his people clean. We celebrate the ultimate prophet who comes to declare God's truth and his will for his people. And we celebrate that you have included us in your people by faith. If you keep your eyes closed for just a moment, as we do most weeks, we enter into a time of response, an opportunity for you to think and reflect and to pray and to meditate and to sing and to worship, just to respond to Jesus and, and who he is and, and how he's speaking. So you do what you would like, what the Spirit leads you to do. If you'd like to sing and stand and celebrate that your King sits on his throne, a throne that will never end, that he has put his enemies under his feet. You want to celebrate and rejoice that you have been grafted in, that you are now a part of his kingdom. You do that. communion table is open in the back if you'd like to make that a part of your worship response time and maybe even right now on your heart the Lord's just pressing in on you to sit and to think as though Jesus had just turned to you and asked you that question that he asked of Peter who do you say that I am who is Jesus to you Is he the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah?
the one promised for thousands of years and who has come to fulfill all of God's promises to his people. And if he's not that to you, will you pray and ask him to reveal himself in that way to you, to open your eyes, to help you to see him for who he really is? Maybe you spend some time just in prayer asking Jesus to reveal himself to you. so that he, Jesus, can say of you, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't come up with this in your own understanding and wisdom. God has revealed this to you, that God would reveal to you who Jesus is and why we celebrate his birth this season. Lord, thank you for this time. Continue to speak and to challenge each and every one of us.